All righty. Um, let's look at the word of God for this afternoon. And we'll pick it back up in Winterville. Amen. So uh, let's see here. Today I want to talk about the waiting room of God. The waiting room of God. Uh, this past week, um, I had the opportunity to visit my um, aunt, Pastor Sharon, <laughs> down in Macon, Georgia. Um, as she is recovering, I believe recovering, <laughs> from a stroke, um, her children had decided, uh, and the family, her children and her husband decided that they would um, no longer seek curative measures for her care. And um, uh, my cousin asked that I could come and just be of support to them um, during this procedure where they remove uh, the, the breathing apparatus. Um, and reluctantly, I went. Uh, and it's only reluctantly because I felt like I would be a terrible support uh, to my family at that time. I mean, how can I pick you off the floor if I'm on the floor? We all on the floor. But, <laughs> but nevertheless, I, I went um, and we had a couple of hours of prayer and worship and just loving on each other and loving on Aunt Sharon. And her children decided that, you know, except for her, her children and her husband, everybody else should probably go wait in the waiting room, um, which I didn't mind because I, me and I, Bell talked, it was probably best for me to be in the waiting room. Um, so I was like, great, at least I'm not the only one sitting here. Um, I've been by many of bedsides, um, young people that have passed, older people, unfortunately children. Um, I've been in waiting rooms to see someone to pray with someone. I've been in waiting rooms of those who are giving birth to babies, and that is pretty much the only time I'm in a waiting room expecting something. And to be in a waiting room and what you're expecting, you're not looking forward to, is a terrible experience. Most times when you're in a waiting room, you're expecting something wonderful, some miraculous healing, some birth of a new life, and you sit there in anticipation of something amazing. You're nervous, you got the bubble guts, your head is spinning, but you are just praying that everything is going well on the other side of that door. This time I'm in a waiting room and it dawned on me that this is not a happy occasion on this side of heaven. That this waiting room is only excitable to those who have already gone to glory. And for those that remain, this is in all sense and purposes the worst waiting room you could ever be in. How do you wait anticipating something that you really don't want. No one ever prepared you on waiting for pain and suffering. No one prepares you for waiting for something that you know is coming that you don't want to come. 
it's a completely different ball game because not only are you without any control, but what is looming over your head is still something you would absolutely prefer not to have. So I, all I could do was sit as her children and husband and, and her sister braced themselves in their room with Aunt Sharon for her transitioning. I sat in the waiting room bracing myself for I don't even know what. My last prayer, I prayed that God would receive her openly for the great service that my aunt has done. And on my way out the door, I said, but if you want to fight, I'll be in the waiting room. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, knock what they're doing. But if you decide between you and the Lord that, that you really want to fight to stay here, I'll be right next door. I'll be praying for, for whatever it is that you want to do. And so as everyone is coming out of the room, the doors keep opening to this sealed facility. I'm on the edge of my seat wondering what's going to walk through the door, the facial expressions of those that walk through. And eventually, my family comes to the door, and their faces are relatively nonchalant. And I'm thinking, oh, they must be in shock. Please tell me, tell me the situation. Well, I'm going to eat some chicken. You're going to eat some. What, what happened? Nothing. She's breathing. And she's been breathing for a couple of hours now. Now, prior to their decision, I tried to explain to my cousin, and they, as, they, as the children and sisters and husband feel the weight of life and death, it would appear in their hands. I tried to explain that whether you decide to take her to uh, hospice care or not, her life and this decision of her life is not in your hands. And though we like to believe that it's in Pastor Aunt Sharon's hands, that her willingness to stay is, is up to her. Ultimately, it's not even up to her. This procedure and transition is 100% up to the will of the Father and the timing of it. When it comes to God's waiting room, timing is absolutely strategic. As a sovereign, and greatly providential God, timing is perfected by him. It's perfect timing. So while Aunt Sharon may want to stay or may want to go, it is of no concern to his perfect timing. While we may want her to stay and we may want her to go and not suffer anymore, it is still of no consequence to God's perfect timing. I believe in my heart that there are things that God allows us to participate in, Small things that he gives us stewardship over. But great things that have to do with life and godliness is completely in his hands. Which is a good place for it to be. And the day that Satan tried to take it from his hands, Christ made sure he got it back. This cannot be given to someone fickle or capricious. This has to be remain with someone with perfect wisdom, perfect understanding, perfect love, and it cannot be in your hands and it cannot be in mine, and it really cannot be in Satan's. So as of today, Pastor Sharon is still yet breathing. Still yet holding on. Now, I myself am out of that waiting room. Obviously, I'm here. And I believe with my heart that she is now in a waiting room herself. And it's this God's waiting room that whether you know it or not, we all sit there.
where every individual who is breathing air, whether it is aided or not aided, is sitting in God's waiting room. Now, today I want to look at this waiting. I want to look at the concept of waiting this morning and what it means for us to sit in God's waiting room. Because contrary to what it was like for me at the hospital, you're not sitting there twiddling your thumbs watching some crazy TV show trying to pray and stay focused. Oh, no. When you're in God's waiting room, it's a lot more active, extremely participatory. And if you're not careful, you will forget that you're waiting for something. Because the amount of time you stay in this waiting room could grow for years and decades. And you might be inclined to think that this is your new home. Well, in fact, you are still just waiting. Let's look at Mark chapter 15, verses 43. Let's just look at Mark 15, verse 43. Something that caught my eye. When you're there, say amen. Mark 15. 43. Amen. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who himself waiting, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God coming and taking, taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Let me read that again without that many mistakes. <laughs> Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, Matthew reaccounts this same segment of scripture in Matthew 27, 57. And it reads that uh, now a, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This is the same verse but told from a different perspective. In Mark, we see that Joseph himself was waiting on the kingdom of God. In Matthew, we see that he could also be called a disciple of Christ. This is unique because you begin to recognize that to be a disciple of Christ could also be defined as one who was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, what becomes problematic is in the idea of waiting, we really don't know how to wait. Especially how to wait for long, long, long periods of time. Waiting for 30 minutes is different than waiting for two days, and waiting for two days is different than waiting for five years, and waiting for five years is different than waiting for a decade, and waiting for a decade is different than waiting for a century. And each one has different methods of how you as an individual has to cope through the period of waiting successfully. To wait successfully for two hours, given the circumstance, might require your cell phone, maybe an extra charger or two, an outlet. To wait for three days might require food preparation and planning. 
To wait for four months might require moving and placing things in storage. To wait for five years might require goodbyes, and I'll, and I'll talk to you later, and cuts off of relationships. To wait for decades might require a change of mindset, a change of philosophy, and a change of life. What I'm trying to show you here is the length of time that you are required to wait begins to amp the amount of preparation that is necessary to successfully wait. The issue is that while we have evidence that disciples have been waiting for a long time, 2,000 plus years, we have come on the scene and have not adjusted to the idea that this may be a long wait. Y'all don't want to help me today. We still live as if this might be a short wait. You know, how do I know? Because you get weary in well-doing. Because you were doing well, then you start to get afraid. Because you have a hard, a very short attention span. Because you're always getting into something. Hello, somebody. That you really have been waiting as if this was going to be a couple of days, rather than noting that these people have been waiting for over 2,000 years. So modern Christians come on the scene with our new microwaves and microwave ages, and we assume that now it's the end time, so thus we must wait differently. If you check the record, the apostles thought that was the end time as well. And the way they waited should still be the way we wait. Y'all don't want to help me today. And could it be now that the length of time that we've seen between their waiting and that waiting of our own of the kingdom of God has caused us to believe that how we should wait is as if it's not coming. That we need to be concerned with some earthly things. Y'all don't want to help me. That we need to be worried about some things that are more tangible. Hello, somebody. Because the wait has been so long. But when we check the records of those who first had to wait, that's not how they waited. And if we fast forward 70 generations from Jesus, that's not how they waited. When we fast forward 200 generations from Jesus, that's still not exactly how true believers wait. Waiting for Jesus and the coming kingdom of God is what it means to be a disciple. To wait for him and his coming kingdom. When I read this scripture, I recognized that it's Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, a rich man, that had to take courage and go ask Pontius Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, this is unique in getting the body of Jesus because Roman crucifixions were notoriously known for keeping the body on the cross for many days after they've died as a warning to any insurrectionists. So the fact that Christ died earlier that morning and Joseph of Arimathea is already there in Pontius Pilate's court later that evening asking for the body is precarious. But before I could even tell you why that is significant, does anybody recognize that this is Joseph of Arimathea and not Joseph of Nazareth? You, they got the same name, and you might be inclined to think that this is his daddy, Joseph and Mary from the story with the, man, the, story with the manger and Jesus being born. But this is not Joseph of Nazareth. This is Joseph of Arimathea, a completely different man, asking for the body of Mary's son. And now this made me think, where has Joseph been? 
That's Joseph of Nazareth. Where has he been? The last we, 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 we found him was when Jesus stayed in the temple in, in Luke 2, verses 41. Luke 22, 41, chapter 2, verse 41 says, Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. And after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for one day. Then they began looking for him among relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days... They found him in the temple, sitting amongst teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why are you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I, would ha I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This is the last time we hear of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus as a united family. Next time we see Mary and, Joseph and Jesus together, Joseph is not present at a wedding feast. I don't think y'all want y'all want to help me any today. Let's look at that one. Cuz we're trying to figure out where is Joseph and what is going on. If you go to John chapter 2 verses 1 through 5, this is a story where Jesus turned water to wine. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. The next time we see Jesus, he's now somewhat active in ministry, having collected some of his disciples, invited to a wedding in his local county, right? He's there. His mother says there's a problem where they need wine. You need to help them. Jesus says, this ain't got nothing to do with me. My time has not yet come. Now, hold on for a second. This Jesus here in John chapter 2 sounds uniquely different than the young, vivacious, and extremely zealous Jesus we see in Luke chapter 2, verses 41. I like the idea first that when Jesus has to turn the water to wine, just from us as family, when we had the services on last week, on last Sunday, we looked at the role of women and men as it relates to Adam and Eve. And in the story of the fall of Adam and Eve, we recognize that Eve was the one that was deceived. And we talked about how it was in her heart that Satan deceived. He got into her heart and not necessarily into her mind. Uh, had he had talked to Adam, then it would be about mind. God said, God, it would be very reasonable, very rational. But Satan spoke to the heart of mankind, which is represented in Eve, and the desire that they had. And we've all discussed that that desire to be like God is true because he created them in his image. 
but how they went about doing it. That's the part that got messed up. Because no matter how you do it, you can't do it by disobeying God. Now that's just basic reason, right? So here we see the first Adam and the last, Jesus himself, being urged by his mother, a woman, hello someone, to begin to move at a time that he's not feeling it's time. Y'all don't want to help me today. I wonder what would have happened when Eve could sense that God wanted us to mature. Come on, somebody. And now how we mature is what's going to require the law of God to be obedient to and not necessarily the fact that he doesn't want us to mature. So Mary tells the people that are there who have ran out of wine at the wedding, yeah, I just spoke to him about this need. He doesn't feel that it's time. But something about a mom can feel timing. Y'all don't want to help me. If nobody else can sense timing, a woman can sense timing. I mean, everything about our genetic makeup says that we begin to feel things that would denote life and the pursuit of life is getting ready to happen. I mean, we could be sitting upstairs, not minding our own business, and that cake is now done. Come on, somebody. You could just sense it, and every woman has this ability. Timing could be intuitively known by women, but how to get it done is where God spoke to Adam. When these two things become one, this communion, this consummation of perfect timing and perfect law, you have, my dear brothers and sisters, some fruit of the Spirit. Y'all don't want to help me today. And we see now that all of mankind's fall is being systematically and symbolically reversed when it is on the woman's heart that now is the time for the Messiah to begin to step forward. And it is on the man's heart to know it is definitely time. With unwavering questionability, she knows whether he's going to tell you something to do. Because what I feel, I know he feels. And I'm just here like a good mom to encourage that thing that he is trying to suppress. Now, why would Jesus try to suppress that this is his time? Y'all don't want to help me here. Well, if, if it, it appears as if all Rome, Roman Catholicism agrees that Joseph, Jesus' father of Joseph of Nazareth of Galilee, right, that he was in fact deceased and had died during what they call Jesus' quiet years. The time period between when he was 12 and he, now apparently he raised Jesus enough to raise him as a carpenter, to teach him the law, that he might grow in stature and wisdom and favor. But there was a point where Joseph, Jesus' father, died. And it's nothing like a parent dying to make you think that it is not time for anything. It's not time. I'll, I'll have some disciples, but I'm not sure about the timing of miracles. I'm not sure. Oh, y'all don't want to help me. Can you imagine being Jesus the Christ? Y'all don't want to help me today. And you know that burns within you is the idea and the power and the sovereignty of God, and yet you are subjected to watching your own father die, rendering you helpless? It's a tough thing because you could know the power of God. You can understand the power of God. And even with all of his power and might, this death is in his timing. 
as a pastor myself that lost my mom, I can recognize it is hard to believe in the timing of miracles, not the ability of miracles to happen. But the timing of miracles is very hard to see when you could not be in the timing of the one miracle you wanted the most. Could it be that this pulls you into a very quiet time where just when you were 12, you were out here preaching in the temple? Y'all don't want to help me. Zealous for the things of God. I don't need no mom. I don't need no dad. All I need is the father. And this was good. And then he said, now go back home and be raised by them. It's not time for you to be out here yet. Go on, Jesus. Attach yourself to humanity. Love the things that are temporary. Feel the pain of loss of love. Now you can't be up here in the spirit realm just out here, just, oh, I just love Jesus. I love God, and, and that's I'm going to preach the gospel. No, 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 no. Attach yourself. Attach yourself to the evils like Judas's, and attach yourself to the temporary like loves and relationships and and, and get all intertwined in humanity. And that's the thing about spiritual folk, that they don't recognize that they're still called to be extremely human. And schizophrenia comes in because you try to undo everything that God is trying to attach you to, and it's just a coping mechanism to avoid pain. I can't depend on nobody. I'll just depend on God. Mm -mm. Go on back home and depend on people. I can't, I can't do that. I can't, I can't fool up with people. I can't fool up with the church. Uh, 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 uh. Go on back to church and fool up. This is the natural course of humanity. And sometimes we can see the truth so clear that we think we found a shortcut around this type of attachment. Hello, somebody. Well, I could be so spiritual that I don't have to deal with divorce. And, and I could be so spiritual that I don't have to deal with a loss of a child. And, and I could just see God's hand and I don't have to really feel the pain of a loss of a parent. And, and I'm not really going through this. It's all just God. No, 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 no. You're going to go through this. You're going to feel this, especially when you're called to ministry. You have to feel this the way humans feel this. Oh, you're, you're just happy rejoicing? No, you're going to feel it. I know it's great with God. Mm, yeah, it is, but it still hurts. Don't try to act like it don't. Because this is the natural course of where God has placed you. If he wanted you to not be attached to this, he would have made you an angel trying to attach yourself to mankind. But he didn't. He made you human. And even Christ himself apparently had to deal with the pains of humanity. And this was even before the cross. He needed his mom to tell him, it's time, baby. Get out there. Let him know who you are. I'm just going to be a teacher. I'm just going to be a teacher. I'm just going to teach these people things. Got my little disciples. We're just teaching. Nah, nah, Jesus, it's time. And after years of quietness, I guess he could finally recognize the truth that his mother was telling him. He told him to get pots, fill them with water. They did it. Water, boom, turned to wine, miracle, and you are on the stage. 
You have now been set apart from every rabbi in your town. In a minute, you're going to be set apart from every rabbi in your, in your nation, every teacher and every wise person of every other religion. You're getting ready to get set apart and on a global stage like none other. Apparently, Joseph was gone. Now, Joseph of Arimathea, fast forward to Christ's, Christ's crucifixion, is asking for the body of Christ. Now, we have to recognize something, and I think it's just when you have the, the passing of a loved one, like similar to myself when I went to visit my mother's site a couple of months ago, and a woman named Deborah came up to me, and my mom's name was Deborah. And you just chuckle at the idea that somebody named Deborah could come and visit you while you're visiting your mother named Deborah. And you know that she's not your mom, and you know that it's really not the same thing, but you can identify that this person is now stepping into, for very briefly, just a moment of the role and responsibility that your mother might have done. You don't know that till you live it. And here I'm sure that Joseph's body uh, Joseph now asking for the body of Christ is him stepping into the role that if your daddy was here, he'd make sure that you got buried right. Y'all don't want to help me today. And, it just, and it's not a coincidence that my name is Joseph. It's God's divine sovereignty. But in case anybody wanted to know, even the body of Jesus was cared for by Joseph. Joseph asked for the body, and this is not only one aspect of sovereignty and, and, and providence of the Father, of God himself, but if you look carefully at Deuteronomy chapter 21 through 22, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 through 23, there was a law that was given regarding anyone that is hung on a tree and the curse that it brings, but there's something else in this law that needs to be seen. Now, bear in mind, Christ was crucified by Roman authorities at the request of Jewish leadership. Okay? But the crucifixion itself was done by Roman, Greco-Roman culture. All right? But back in Deuteronomy, thousands of years prior to this, God had already set some things in motion. When someone is convicted of a crime, Deuteronomy records, punishable by death, and is executed, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse must not remain all night upon the tree. You shall bury him that same day. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not defile the land that the Lord your God is giving you for possession. Y'all don't want to help me preach today. Do you see the sovereignty to make sure not only that Joseph's name was Joseph, hello somebody, but not only the sovereignty of that, but the sovereignty that if you hang on a tree and that's how you're going to be crucified, that that is going to bring the curse, but there's no sin in you. That takes some divine sovereignty. And then furthermore, I'm going to make sure that 2,000 years before you actually get on that cross, I'm going to make sure that your body comes down off that tree on one day and that you remain in the tomb for three days. Perfect timing. Not only perfect timing, but perfect provision. Things were set in place that the perfect timing of God might be accomplished. 
Joseph of Arimathea said, no, 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 no. We've got to take his body down. It's got to be buried. Number one, it's Jewish, Jewish tradition. And since you crucified him at our urging and he was not a part of your war or a conquering, then you should be able to give him to us, which has happened before in Roman culture. Not often, but some. And since he was wealthy, typically this is done for the elite. Joseph of Arimathea could ask for Jesus' body. And on the same day that he was crucified, he was taken down. Pilate was thinking, is he, has he been dead enough time? The soldier said, yeah, he's oh, he been dead. He's dead, dead. All right, well, you can have his body. Yeah, Joseph of Arimathea asked for Jesus' body, and it was given to him in the same day. And he took his body, and they buried him in a, in a stone tomb. All the providence of God had to be in line for this. This meant that Christ's crucifixion could not have happened any sooner or any later. It could not have happened a minute sooner or a minute later. There were things that God had already put in place that needed to, this needed to hit at the perfect time. God's waiting room is unique because as a disciple, if you're waiting on his coming kingdom, then the first thing you should recognize is all of this is in his perfect timing. And my faith is not about my preference of timing. I don't believe that I, could that I could have what I want. I believe so that I can make it to the end of God's perfect time. Y'all don't want to help me preach. Okay, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you. Go to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verses 13 through 14. When you're there, say amen. The psalm, one of the psalms written by David, exclaims, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He goes on to exclaim, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. God's waiting room is not necessarily what you think. For years of my life when I read this, I read it this way. Not the way it's printed, but I read it in my mind like it said this. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see that God would do what it is that I want him to do very soon. <laughs> and it is okay for me to wait on the Lord and be of good courage because I know he's going to do it. So thus and therefore, I have the ability to wait on the Lord. Anybody else ever read that with that in mind? It's not what it's saying, is it? He says, I, David exclaims, I would have last, last lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He didn't define or state what that goodness was. Hello? Then he goes on to say, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. See, when you tell me to wait and then to be of good courage, that means with strength, right? In the face of fear, going to courageously, fear is present, it's not removed. When someone says courage, it means that the threat is still present. 
So he's saying, now wait in the midst of the threat. Hello? Wait very well in the midst of the threat. And he will strengthen your heart. Strengthen my heart to get it? No. Strengthen your heart to wait. Hello? Is it, and he will strengthen your heart? Wait, I say on the Lord. Strengthen my heart to get what I want. Mm-mm. Strengthen your heart to wait some more. Strengthen my heart to wait. Strengthen your heart to wait some more. The previous clause of that verse says, I would have definitely lost heart had I not believed that I would see the goodness of God. I wonder, since he doesn't really define what he wants. He doesn't say, I would have lost heart if I didn't really believe that God was going to give me that job. I would have lost heart if that prophet didn't prophesy that I was going to get that, 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 that house. I would have lost heart if I didn't see all these signs that indicated that this was going to go in the direction that I wanted. That's not what he's saying. He said, I would have lost heart, hello somebody, if I did not, if had I not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. It's something about being in God's waiting room that could distort you and stop you from seeing all the other areas that God is good. In God's waiting room, the amount of time that you have to wait, especially when it comes to a child being born, everybody knows the longer you're in the waiting room, the more complications you begin to think that could have gone awry. The longer we stay in this position, the worse things are going to get. This can't be right. And some of you are in situations in your life where you know emphatically that the longer you stay in this, the worse it's getting. But you've concluded that faith is to believe that it's going to get better. That's not what faith is, baby. Faith is courage on the timing of God. Hello? Can't quite handle that part. I'll come back to that. Because I would have lost heart had I not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Being in the waiting room of God, the best method of waiting for long periods of time is to acknowledge and to be able to meditate and think on the goodness of God. In God's waiting room, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of pain, in the circumventing of all of life's problems that are not seeming to change, what you need to meditate on isn't how God can do it. No. Is it how God can fix it? Nope, that's not going to hold you. Is it that God is powerful even though that's true? Is not that God is loving even though that's true? What you have to do in the waiting room of God is pray that he will strengthen you to see all the other times that he was good. I have to take courage that I could, I could see in the midst of this pain that is not changing all of the other areas that God is good. Could it be that God is delaying the inevitable to give you an opportunity to wait correctly. Hello, somebody. The issue is that you've been waiting thinking that I'm going to give you what you want. 
But if I could get you to wait, y'all don't want to help me. And in this waiting, remember all the goodness of God. Let you be able to see all the goodness of God. Then just maybe if I don't do what you want me to do, that you would have had a good foundation of how many times God was good, how many times God had been faithful, how many times he was legitly loving on you. So if this one thing does not go your way, your soul is not lost. Somebody don't know how to wait correctly. Hello, somebody. You thought waiting was believing and believing and believing. I believe my God going to save them. I believe, I believe God going God to deal with their heart. I believe God going to change them. I believe, uh-uh, uh-uh. That's not what God's waiting room is about. It's, it's not. These things are true. God can deliver. God can change. God can heal. God can restore all facts. But the purpose why you are waiting, dear loved one, is not that you could believe that he could do a miracle. It's that you could see the goodness of God in your waiting just in case he doesn't do what you want him to do. Because if it don't turn out the way you want, you might get lost. You might venture off into a lack of faith. And you do. You do have a lack of faith because your faith was defined by what you wanted. And yeah, that has to die. That's not what real belief is. Surely the creator of all heaven and earth could do whatever it is you want him to do. But he's not. Sometimes. He's not. And when he decides not to, you're not going to be okay. You're going to pull back from God, get despondent, try to find ways to solve this pain, hurt, and anguish. Do you understand? I need distractions in the waiting. Y'all don't want to help me. I, can you turn the music up? Can you turn the TV on? Where my phone at? I just can't sit here with the idea that you're not going to give me what I want. Uh-uh. I, can't, I can't just sit here knowing that. I need to be distracted about something. Let me think about something else. But the purpose of the waiting room in God is that you might see the goodness of the Father. Because, baby, I'm about to do something that's not going to register in your mind. I'm about to do something that has not come into the heart and mind of man. And you're not going to be able to handle what I'm getting ready to do. You ain't going to be able to handle it. Because you don't know how to wait. You don't know how to see God's goodness. Even in the face of what you don't want on the horizon. Could it be that he's extended this weight just for you? So when he pulls the trigger, sets it in motion that you are safe and sound. Safe and sound. Safe and sound that your faith is not destroyed. I remember when mommy passed, after we got past the funeral and the preparations, I was just... I don't even know what I was. And Jewel had asked me many of occasions, as my passing of my mother began to bring up the hurt of the loss of her father, for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, somehow the conversation would always get back to, but are you mad at God? And I would say, Jewel, honestly, I, I can't be mad at him. I learned with the passing of my grandmother that death and life is in his hands. 
when my Uncle Jackie passed, I remember being in the funeral procession thinking, everybody needs to stop their cars and everybody needs to don't go to work. We need to declare a national holiday because somebody really precious died. And, how, and that's the first time I had to recognize that the world doesn't stop. Because someone you love passed. And I was young. I was, in, I was a, what, a freshman in college? I, I didn't even understand that. No, no, no. It seemed like everything should stop. All the cars. What you doing? You be driving past us. Don't you see? We, we got a situation here. When family members couldn't make the funeral and didn't do it, I was like, how, what is wrong with you? Everything needs to stop. Life needs to stop for a moment. And I had to learn that with my uncle Jackie's passing, life did not stop. Tough blow. Tough blow. When grandmother passed, I had to learn that God was the God of death, too. He's love, he's life, and he's ending, he's ceasing, and he destroys things. And I love the Jesus version of God. <laughs> Arms outstretched. Come all who labor. Oh, I love Jesus. He's my brother. He's my father. He's amazing. And then I had to come to grips with this. Rawr, God. This you're big. You're really big. Jesus made you so personable, but you're bigger than how you portray yourself to me. You deal with bigger things than what I got going on. You're the God of large scale stuff. And it put a distance in me and his relationship because I didn't really want to talk to him like I knew him anymore. It was like, the first time somebody yells at you that never yelled at you, you'd be like, okay, okay. <sighs> did not know that about you. I mean, I knew, but I didn't know. Now I can feel what everybody else is feeling about you. I was afraid. I was fearful. And in the shower, I remember talking to God, and, and he said, your grandmother, who I love dearly, she was my savior when my parents was young and stupid. She said, your grandma, she's with me. And when he said that, it clicked, okay, I remember you. Like for a minute, for months and months, I've forgotten that version of God and was replaced with this fear some God. He said, no, 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 it's still me. Okay, if she would shoot then you're fine. Because I was thinking, oh, she would God. Oh, look at him. <laughs> get, get a load of that. <laughs> I felt like, I don't know about you, but your other side here, you got a whole other side, and you got my grandma up there, and my grandma is sweet, and people need to take me nice to her. And you have a side that doesn't look nice. And I was worried and afraid. So I learned with grandma's passing that he's a big God, but he's still very loving. When Uncle Mark passed, I learned the compassion of God, the sovereignty of when a person's life doesn't quite line up with what you think it could be and how gracious God is in embracing us. I had already knew it, but now I had a chance to see it for myself. I'm like, oh yeah, he's a loving God. Unfortunately, the world cannot stop. And it was in the passing of my Uncle Mark that I told my mom and dad, you need to fill out these paperwork so in case this ever happens to you, I'll know what to do because life doesn't stop. 
Uncle Mark is safe, he's happy, he's no longer here, that's wonderful. I need you to fill this paperwork out. A month later, my mom passed. And so when Jesus said, when, when Jewel asked, well, are you mad at God? No. Been there, done that. Are you angry with him? I can't be. Even now, I see the goodness of God running through my life in the midst. I said, Joe, he's being so sweet to me. He's being so nice. I'm heartbroken, and he's being so kind. I see him doing things and moving things and getting the money for the funeral and having the, we found the paperwork of what she wanted, and, and I see all of you guys loving. I said, I can't even be mad at him. He's, he's good. And then I was brought into a waiting room called grief. I've been here for a while. But I know what I'm supposed to do in this waiting room. It's to pray that I might be able to have my eyes open to see that in the midst of a looming pain, the goodness of God. I've learned it. Got it. As said, not only do I have learned it, but I'm trying to perfect it. That in everything, I could say truly that it is good. Not that it will work for my good, but that it is good. So when I broke my finger or fractured, I don't know what this is, all right? Um, last night, just happened last night, I fell trying to grab Bishop and fell on my finger. And um, Glenda said, but it's good, isn't it? And it hit me as a bit facetious because I discussed that this is what I'm working on, but it's not for you to interject who have not even tried to work on this, that this, you're going to help me learn this lesson. You can't help me learn that this pain is good. You can't. Don't even try, especially if you have not been through this type of pain. It's going to read disingenuous. It's good though, right? No. But I didn't say no. I said, it is. And to every demonic spirit that is trying to make me feel like even this pain can't be good, I'm going to use it in my message tomorrow. <laughs> I could already see how this is going to be good to preach on. Pain throbbing. I mean, excruciating and I'm just breathing through it like oh and then after hours pass it's still throbbing and I'm like oh god ah oh, but it's so good because I'm a preach the fact that my finger broke the night before and I got two services to do and I can say to you God it's still good somehow you divinely prescribed that this was coming to me Something being good could still be painful. I don't think y'all want to help me today. You think that because it's painful, it's not good. But something can be good and painful. So when Glenda said, it's good, right? Oh, it's good. Pain throbbing, excruciating. A 10, at least. No, it's good. And because I'm hurt does not change the definition of good. Y'all don't want to help me today. 
because I'm hurt does not change. I'm trying to help somebody today. Just because I'm hurt doesn't change the definition of good. It's still good. Now, if you are in the waiting room and you can't see how this is good because the pain is so bad, please know that this is exactly why you are in the waiting room. You're not going to be released until you can learn how something could be good and painful. Y'all don't want to help me. Is not a mother giving birth in pain? And is it not also good that she's giving birth? Because the caveat here is that you could be in birth. Hello, somebody. Giving birth, and there's no life that comes from it. So is it possible that something could be? Now, now hear me out. Because we won't get to this till later this afternoon. But just a woman in labor is hoping, especially before modern technology, that when she gives birth to this child, it will be alive. But it is possible that you could give birth to a child that is not alive. This means that you went through all the hope and all the pain. God bless your heart to whoever this is. And all the pain was for nothing. At least what you had hoped could come from it didn't come and you might be inclined to think that that was not good and you'd be it is fair for you to be angry upset frustrated and agitated pastor are you agitated yes but I can still see very clearly well no pastor it's just because you're grieving you can't no I'm in pain but I could see very clear learn that and all the waiting rooms I've been in pain does not have to distort my view in some cases, it can make it even more clear. Ain't like being in pain and suffering and tribulation that'll really show you who's for you and who ain't. And later, later they'll want to say, oh, no, I love you. But mm, at that moment, I felt no compassion. At that moment, I felt no empathy. At that moment, I, mm, mm. it's okay because your waiting room will come. I get it. You ain't been through the waiting rooms I've been through. Right? So I said, okay, all right. When it's all said and done, this mother who's, who's given birth, the child is, is no longer alive. How do you find good in that? And this is what you have to ask yourself. How do I find good in waiting? when the end of my waiting is not what I had hoped. Are you single and waiting to be married and it may not come? Are you afraid that you could do all this waiting the right way and you still don't get married? What I challenge you to do, dear brethren, is to examine that in this waiting period with God, it's not about the outcome. Come on, somebody. Some of you are in marriages that need to be or could be headed for divorce. Again, this waiting period is not about the outcome. You don't want to help me here. Y'all don't want to help me. Some of you had jobs that could end, houses that could be gone, situations that could turn a different way. And this waiting period is not about the outcome. This waiting period is about how you ascertain the goodness of God how you define it. Is it, if it's merely defined 
by whether you get what you want, then the kingdom of God is not yours. Because we're waiting for the coming kingdom of God. Come on, somebody. If this is just about the end of the waiting period, I'm trying, I'm trying to wrap this up. Hello, somebody. If the end of the waiting period is just about does it go the way you thought, does it go the way you wanted, then the kingdom of God is not yours. Because disciples wait on the coming kingdom, not of you. The coming kingdom, not of you. The coming kingdom of God. So all this waiting you've been doing, you've been waiting so poorly. That they need to kick you out of the waiting room because you're disturbing everybody else. Or if you're having a hissy fit, kicking and screaming, throwing stuff, cussing. Ah, I can't stand this. I can't stand. Okay, if you ain't going to leave, we're going to go over here because <laughs> we're trying to do a thing with God. We're trying to see good in the land of the living. We're trying to see goodness in the land of the living. And when you're in the land of the living, things can be very painful. But I would have lost heart had I not believed that I would see the goodness of God in this painful and dark world. Not that I could see him do what I want. Because be honest, that's never enough. You want stuff all the time. Every time I pick up a phone, I feel like find something else that I want. It's because I buy things from my phone that now all the companies know she's a good one to go at. And I have to tell myself, you don't need that, but I want it. You don't want it that bad. No. But look, it can make your skin smooth. But look, it helps with muscles. No, no, no. You don't want it. You don't want it. <laughs> and you recognize that your wants never end. No, be honest. Your wants never end. So if the goodness of God can only be defined by him fulfilling your desires that are endless, then you will never see the goodness of God. Because it's been defined by you. He's your good God if. You're good to me if. And you ain't been good to me because my dad, you ain't been good to me because my mom did this. And you ain't been good to me because all my life I had to fight. And you ain't be, see? 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 And I did the right thing. And I, and I obeyed God. And now look at my marriage. And look at this. And look at that. See? Right there. Right there. And all the years you've been waiting on God to move, you have not been waiting properly. You've been waiting with adamant faith and strong willpower that he'll do what you want. That's not faith. Taking courage and believing that you'll still see his goodness even when it's not going the way you want. That'll carry you through. That'll cross you over. That'll get you to the promised land. Y'all don't want to help me today. You can't roll up in God's kingdom. If you have not first understood that everything he has done has been good. You are a traitor as a constituent. Hello, somebody. You complained the whole time you was down here. Y'all don't want to help me. Complain about what didn't go right down here. And now you think you about to get a free pass on into heaven to do what? Complain about what else ain't going your way. 
Your waiting room is about how you wait. Hello, somebody. Ain't about the outcome. Now, this is David, who said, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. David, as a king, was always talking about rejoice in God. I mean, he danced out of his clothes, right? Celebrate. Take joy. Take comfort. Wait on the Lord. Give him glory. Be joyful in your heart towards God. Just over and over and over and over again. And David went through some stuff. He messed up some things. Did some terrible things. Had his boss, the king, try to kill him when he was just trying to help him. But in all of his writings, which he then bequeathed to his son, the next reigning king, Solomon, he told Solomon, rejoice in all things. Rejoice and give God glory. Love on the father and extol him for who he really is. But dad... Saul tried to kill you, like, for many, many, many years. It's okay, son. Rejoice. It's all right. Just thank God. It's okay. Just give God glory. No, Dad, no. That wasn't right. But come on, son. You can't look at that. You got to see the goodness of God. And there are people in your life that try to do this for you. Come on. Don't worry about that, son. Just, just take courage in the Father. Come on. Don't look at that. It's going to be all right. Come on. Don't worry about that. God's going to make a way. And he surrounds you with his people. But for some of us, this does not stick. Sit on down. Solomon, David's son, when he writes his teachings, they don't have the same tone as his father. Solomon is melancholy to say the least. He would have been diagnosed with chronic depression. I mean, no matter how good things were going for him, they just didn't make him happy. That's chronic depression. It really is. Right? When it's good, he wasn't happy. When it was bad, he was even more unhappy. He went to some dark places. Solomon doesn't write rejoice. Solomon writes vanity. <laughs> Chapters 1 and 2, vanities, it's all vanities. Vanities are vanities. All is vanity. There is po- nothing has a purpose. Everything is pointless. Everything is terrible. Even the good is horrible. Even the bad is horrible. Even when I get something good, it don't work out and it's not great. Everything is pointless. There is no purpose for this. Everything has pain. Nothing is ever wonderful. That's a, it's a stark difference between the way your daddy spoke. I'm just going to be honest with you. I want you to to hang your hat just here for a second. Could it be that the tribulations of David that forced him into the waiting rooms of God taught him about the goodness of the Father? And absent of those tribulations, Absent of trying to defend the kingdom. Absent.
absent of all of the wars and conflict, absent of all of the trying to find your purpose, because to Solomon, riches and wealth were already laid. To Solomon, the kingdom was already established. To Solomon, the thing was already laid, who you're supposed to be, where you're supposed to be, and how you're supposed to be. It was already done. Now you have the opportunity to explore things that your father never had the opportunity to do. You, you so blessed. You got your degrees and all. That you get to contemplate how everything is pointless. See, when you're really in tribulation, you know, I can't think about things that are pointless because I really need to make sure that the enemy don't take me out right now. See, I ain't got time to be worried about what the purpose behind this or we ain't going to eat. I ain't, got to, I ain't got time. See, but you have been privileged. The kingdom of Christ has already been established before you and I got here. You have the opportunity to, to explore your purposes. And is this really the real faith? Or is there another faith? Look at you. And what has it brought you? Well, your conclusion about life is that it's all vanity? Solomon has money, wisdom, notoriety, 700 wives, 300 concubines. <laughs> he definitely learned some of that ain't good. But I'm sure he was mad that if a man like me, attractive, powerful, wealthy, and wise, Still can't make a woman be faithful. You see in verse chapter 8, he really goes off on, these girls ain't good for nothing. I could give them the world, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and it still ain't good enough for these women. And I get another one thinking, she promised that she's going to be faithful. And it's going off good. And it looks like it's about to be well. And then she came. No, Solomon, I would never do you like them other wives did you. I'm the real wife. I'm the one that's going to love you. Nope. And some of y'all men that got wives, they, oh, you're going to be the one. And you looking just like the rest of the girlfriends I broke up with. How did this happen? I thought I found the one. No, you're in a waiting room. You're in a waiting room. Solomon explores. Wow. Hello? In the first seven chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, which is written by Solomon, King Solomon, he describes all of the worldly things under the sun, that means the things that are temporary, that the preacher tries to find fulfillment in or purpose. He tries scientific discovery in chapters one. Wisdom and philosophy in chapter one, myrrh and happiness in chapter two, alcohol in chapter two, architecture in chapter two, uh, what else? Pro property management in chapter two, luxury in chapter two. The preacher turned his head and his mind towards different philosophies to the meanings of life and such as materialism and even moral codes in chapters, including chapters eight through nine. Okay, well maybe it's not about stuff, maybe it's about character and morality and he begins to explore that in chapters eight through nine. By the time we get to chapters 8 and 12, Ecclesiastes describes the teacher or Song of Solomon's suggestions and comments on how life should be lived. He's come to the conclusion that without God, there is no truth or meaning to life. 
He has seen many evils and realized that even the best of man's, achieve, man's achievements are worth nothing in the long run. So he advises the reader to acknowledge good from youth and to follow the will of God. Solomon, you spent, now hear me out, okay? You spent your entire lifetime trying to figure out what your daddy already told you. I can read it because I can see it in the Proverbs and the Psalms. You spent your whole life trying to figure out what the purpose is. Maybe I should expand this. Maybe I should explore this. Maybe I need the wisdom of this. Maybe I need the job of this. Only to come back to whatever the Lord wants is what you need to want. Whatever he desires is what you need to desire. You don't need to worry about that. You don't need to worry about the wife. You don't worry about none of that. You need to worry about God. What a waste. But God used it to teach us. But some of us still could see it in print. Here is a man that had everything that was still searching. And then you pattern your life right after Solomon. Got to get the house, got to get the wife, got to get this, got to get that. Got to get this set up. Got to get, okay, now it's about morality. Okay, now it's about going to church. Okay, I'm going to do this. No. Terrible waiting room experience. I'm going to leave you today <laughs> as we prepare for our next service. Still on the waiting room of God. Would it be a part two? But I want to leave you with ex- uh, Ecclesiastes chapter three. Because you can't really understand the waiting room of God until you understand time. And in Solomon's pursuit of wisdom, and he had the money to try out all kinds of ways of life. Okay? Poor people, we can only try one kind of life. The the poor kind. (laughs) Surviving. Okay? Rich people could try to live like poor people. They could try to live like rich people. They could go over here to this country, that to that country. They could try all kinds of stuff. Okay? We cannot. So in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, there's a couple of things that I want to read before we go, and I'm going to just put emphasis on a couple of these. But it's good that you hear it again, because you cannot be in the waiting room of God if you do not understand timing. To everything, Solomon says, there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Now this is important because at first you're thinking everything is purposeless, lacks purpose, is vanity. It's because it cannot be defined in one purpose, but it's a sum of purposes that have to happen, that create time. It is purposeful that you were married here, but it may not be purposeful that you're married at this point. It is purpose. I'm going to show it to you. A time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die. There will be a waiting room for both. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up 
what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. This is a strong one here. Because there be points in my measures where I give you a time to laugh and you still don't want to laugh. And I be thinking to myself, but this is the joke that you're supposed to laugh on. You better take advantage because then I'm going to hit you again and you're going to be sorrowful again. See, but you had a time to recover because I gave you a joke. Say he, 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 he. You're going to leave being miserable like the whole service was miserable for me. Nobody told you to be solemn the entire service. Gave you some of my best jokes, man. A time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. There's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. Y'all don't want to help me. To all the hoarders. It's time to keep. And a time to, and that's a giveaway, it's a throw away throw it away bible so those of you that want about write about relationships and unholy actions there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing it's up to you to know what that timing is a time to keep a time to throw away a time to tear and a time to sow a time to keep silent and a time to speak. There is a time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. I'm gonna stop there. We can finish, pick it up when we do the next service with, with um, uh, Deliverance Temple. But I want you to see this. That some of you don't recognize that there is a time to hate. As a matter of fact, you have not recognized that there is a time for all the stuff that you don't like. Equally as there is a time for all the stuff that you do like. And if you're in your waiting room trying to get away from all the stuff you don't want, you're not understanding timing. Y'all don't want to help me. So now you're waiting in vain. Now your waiting is not fruitful. And what is born is stillborn and not alive. Because you refuse to understand timing. There's a time to embrace and there's a time not to. There's a time to love somebody and it's a time, like Jesus said, you have to hate your mother and brother in order to do this work. And you refuse to understand when those seasons are in your life. So you forfeit what God intended for your waiting. Standing all over the house. 